This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to tell you about some of the processes that unfold as the baby brain grows and, and develops. In particular, I'm going to focus on the underpinnings of language, since language learning impairment is a feature of so many developmental disorders, which we're going to get into later. So why look at baby brain function? Because while we watch this magical unfolding of early abilities across development, we can begin to answer some very big questions, including how do early events of development influence later cognition and later competence? What risk factors during early development have consequences for adult behavior or disorder, and how that might, how might that be altered? And how can very early abnormalities in the functional organization of brain networks be causal in developmental disorders such as language learning disorder, autism, or ADHD? And importantly, how early might biomarkers be detected, measured, and perhaps remediated with non-invasive technologies? So, as newborns, babies can discriminate the sounds of every language um, acoustically, but not linguistically. So, starting at birth, the baby's developing brain is constructing an acoustic map of the sounds of his or her native language. And this gradual process, perceptual narrowing, is thought to be completed by the end of the first year. Mapping of these acoustic contrasts is important because their salient to the surrounding language ultimately allows the child to respond in a fast, automatic way to the incoming language stream. And it's problematic if this doesn't go well because it impacts um, mounting of fluent native language uh, as well as cognition and later reading due to difficulties in what's called phoneme to grapheme mapping. That is, mashing speech sounds to letters, which you need to do to read. Uh, efficient processing of basic auditory events in the tens of millisecond domain called rapid auditory processing is critical to mounting language in normative development and allows the most optimal acoustic maps to be constructed. And this is because many speech sounds, phonemes like da or ta, uh, only differ by brief spectral and or temporal changes specifically within the tens of milliseconds. And differences in these basic acoustic processing abilities have been shown to be related to both concurrent and later language learning difficulties. Research from my lab strongly suggests that the ability to perform these very fine acoustic discriminations within speech or non-speech, because we mainly look at prelinguistic non-speech, is critically important to normative language, and it may go awry in a subset of developmental disorders. Moreover, these skills predict language outcomes through early pre-reading and have an impact on later learning. So many of our studies, uh, we examine populations at higher risk for various disorders as a consequence of a child being born into a family with such disorders. And heritability studies suggest the risk can be 30 to 60% higher depending on which disorder and which study. So how do you measure brain responses in infants? Um, you can do, use electroencephalography, EEG, which reflects the summation of um, 
the synchronous activity of millions of neurons that have similar spatial orientation. You can also use brain-evoked related potentials. And this is an average across many trials to generate an averaged waveform that is time-locked to external stimulation. This permits examination of the time course in the brain areas related to sensory processing. And you can compare and contrast group response as well as compare individual responses to group norms. Research suggests that brain oscillations, which are cyclic fluctuations of the membrane potential in brain cells, control neuronal excitability, integrate sensory inputs, and may coordinate higher-level functions such as language memory and learning. However, neural dynamics is just beginning to be studied in the human infant. Our previous studies in pilot data strongly suggest that oscillatory dynamics and their hierarchical organization have a developmental timeline and may capture disruption in normative development. So how can you look at that? You can look at the EEG, um, and you can do something called a fast Fourier analysis. This is one way of doing it, which breaks the the, um, EEG pattern down into its component frequencies. Um, Synchronized neural oscillations in these low frequencies, delta, theta, and alpha, are thought to provide key mechanisms that orchestrate network coordination during development and may be involved in information transfer among brain areas. Theta oscillations in particular are important for perceptual and cognitive functions, such as declarative and episodic memory and have been proposed as a neural mechanism subserving phonemic discrimination, which is one of the reasons we're very interested in it. Gamma oscillations from 30 to 80 or 90 hertz may represent synchronized activity of local neuronal populations during sensory and cognitive processes, but may also, particularly high gamma, play a role in coupling of remote cortical areas. So given that activity in this gamma frequency has been linked in humans and animals to a wide variety of higher cognitive processes, including attention, memory, and language, we first examined power density in frontal cortex across the language burst in two groups of children. Um, And I'm going to give you a few little snippets of some studies. Um, We studied the power of um, spectra in uh, two groups of children with and without a family history of language learning impairment at 16, 24, and 36 months of age when this huge burst in language occurs. We found that individual differences in frontal gamma power during rest highly correlated with concurrent language and cognitive skills at all ages. Children with a family history of language learning impairment had lower frontal gamma at all ages, Power was also associated with attentional measures. Children who were observed as having better inhibitory control and more mature attention-shifting abilities had higher power. We continued to follow this group, um, and we found that examining gamma across the language burst strongly predicted to both cognition and language at ages four and five years. We saw that Um, At at 16, 24, and 36 months, resting gamma was associated with four-year language comprehension scores and word structure and sentence structure scores. And at 24 and 36 months, gamma power was significantly associated with five-year sentence imitation, which is really important for pre-readers. 36-month gamma power was also significantly associated with five-year syntactical skills. So what's the the take-home message here? We believe that 
the capacity to generate higher power in the gamma range at these crucial developmental periods may index better modulation of attention and allow, allow easier access to working memory, providing an advantage for overall de development, particularly in the linguistic domain. We were then interested in examining oscillatory support in younger infants. So using event-related potential, source localization, and a time frequency analysis of event-related oscillations, so from the source, we examined the neural substrates of rapid auditory processing in four-month-olds. Animal models in adult experiments suggest that oscillatory synchrony and in particular low-frequency oscillations in the delta and theta range play key roles in rapid auditory processing and auditory change detection. So we hypothesized that synchronized activity of brain oscillations in left and right auditory cortices would support rapid frequency discrimination in infants. Moreover, we thought that infant perception of rapid pitch and timing changes, which is so critical, should be mediated at par in part, at least, by oscillatory mechanisms. These issues had not been looked at in infants at all, in human infants. We used two sets of stimuli, speech-like tones and a control condition that was out of the speech-like range. So we found, and this is a very busy slide, but I'll walk you through it. These, you're going to see some of these figures that show pooled oscillatory power over time with frequency on the x-axis, time on the y-axis for these complex tone pairs in the control rate and in the rapid rate, the speech-like rate. And these are for standards, the background sounds. These are for deviants, the ones that change. And this is the difference between the two. Face uh, synchronization is in red. Desynchronization is in blue. And what we saw was that there was uh, enhanced phase locking to variant tones in both rate conditions, um, larger and faster activation in the right hemisphere at both rates, However, left auditory activity was enhanced only during rapid rate presentation. We also gave these babies um, a go-no-go -no -go behavioral task at their second visit. Auditory perception was measured by the infant's ability to learn a reward contingency for a deviant tone in a pair. And the number of trials it took the baby to get four out of five correct was their criterion. Um, and we, we did a median split with faster and slower learners. And what you see is that tone discrimination is strongest for the children who learn faster. We also saw that slower learners had smaller power differences between their standard and deviant responses. Um, and this is, uh, suggests that they had a lot of difficulty discriminating one signal from another. So the takeaway message here is that local low-frequency oscillatory synchrony underlies rapid processing and can robustly index auditory abilities in young infants. And recruitment of the left hemisphere during rapid frequency change suggests a difference in the spectral and temporal resolution of the right and left hemispheres, even at this very early age. Moreover, we were able to predict behavior in a go-no-go -no -go task by looking at oscillatory brain power. So the question is, if we can find deficits so early in life, can we alter them using the exquisite plasticity typical of this early developmental time period while infants are setting up their acoustic mapping? Can we make the baby a better processor? And can we see intervention-specific changes in the brain waves and oscillatory patterns that reflect enhanced processing? So can we look for some causal mechanisms?
And so we did a study, we did a couple of studies, and looking at plasticity in developing brain and seeing if active auditory exposure would impact prelinguistic acoustic mapping. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, but the paper's published if you need it. Uh, so we looked at the neural correlates of acoustic mapping with dense array EEG ERP before and after a six-week interactive progressive acoustic experience. We used an operantly conditioned go-no-go active paradigm with an eye-tracking control so the baby could actually um, manipulate the um, experiment. And we used a passive control and a naive maturation control. And here's the study designed two longitudinal arms, one with active training, one with passive training, and two, a cross-sectional sample of children who were not trained. So what did they get when they were trained? Once a week for six weeks, um, for six to eight minutes, the babies were trained on three different types of paired stimuli, complex tones, bandpass noise, frequency sweeps, presented at varying ISIs and varying complexities using an up-down staircase procedure. So if the baby got it right, it got harder. They got it wrong, it got easier. And so they went up and down until they reached criterion. The passive group got the same stimuli and the same time exposure, but passive with no feedback. And we didn't train the naive children. After they were trained, we collected data on ERPs, EEGs that they had been trained on, as well as different types of generalization stimuli. So we looked at um, deviants with spectrotemporal parameters that significantly differed from the training stimuli, one with a gap, one with a differing duration, and one with frequency. So what did we see? Yes, this is a monster figure. So we're not going to talk about um, the grand average waveforms. I'm going to just pull out the information about these time-locked age-appropriate topograms to, first of all, this P2 peak. And this is a peak that happens that's an attentional peak. Um, And what we see here is around each topogram, if it has a red box, it means there were significantly faster latencies. So the active group was significantly faster than both the passive and the naive groups on this peak. Um, And then we also were interested in looking at what's called the N2 star. And this is the change discrimination peak that happens right before the baby discriminates the signal. Um, And it... It's important because it's been shown to be a robust infant predictor of later language. So both of the auditory groups, um, experience groups, were significantly faster than the naive controls, but the actives had larger amplitude compared to both other groups and showed um, uh, a left hemisphere lateralization. We then looked at the signals that were... Uh, generalization stimuli. And what you can see in these bar graphs is the mean latency of each deviant at each of the nine electrode sites for P1. That's the first sensory peak that signals that a stimulus has been perceived. And what you can see here for the gap, for the duration and the frequency, is the active group was significantly faster at all nine electrode sites. So we demonstrated that while both active and passive Um, acoustic experience from four to seven months, um, modulated non-speech stimuli, active experience conferred a significant advantage. That active experience increased attention to environmental acoustic stimuli, and that faster latencies were seen 
for the change discrimination peak that has been shown to be a robust infant predictor of later language. Moreover, we saw generalization to both trained and untrained stimuli over and above that seen for maturation alone. And do these intervention effects generalize to language? I can just say yes, because I think we're just about at the end. But just let me show you this high gamma. At nine months, we looked to we continued to look at them longitudinally, and you can see that for the actives, you have this very high gamma input here, which is a prominent characteristic of early sensory processing and may index cortical activation given larger high but not low gamma responses are correlated with increases in overall firing rates, particularly during attentional, attentional modulation. And with that, I show you our prototype that does the same intervention um, in the baby's home. And that's the end. So, yeah, I want to, I really want to follow on in this wonderful vein of uh, discussion and thought that we've had so far this uh, today. Uh, Thinking about this question, making an old brain young, as I get older, I want to be younger. So this is part of it. But I really want to consider how we can take lessons from understanding um, the child's brain and see if we can apply them to the adult brain or the aging brain or the, uh, uh, the brain with neuropathology. And so first, before I actually do that, I really want to talk about um, the uh, concept of what a critical period is and just remind you that uh, a, a developmental critical period is a period during which time uh, special experiences are essential for the later functioning of the brain, and that's because these experiences are essential for tuning up brain circuits. And I want to talk about that in much more detail in a minute. But a good example of a developmental critical period that I have experienced, alas, myself, is one for language learning. Obviously, you can learn throughout life. You can learn languages throughout life. But learning a language without an accent as an adult is extremely difficult, whereas, as we all know now, it's extremely easy to learn many languages perfectly as a, as a young child. And this has been my regret my whole life. Now, how... So here's the concept, basically, which is if we could only understand the underlying molecular and cellular mechanisms that regulate these developmental critical periods, maybe we could then apply them, either in aid of repair, to reverse developmental neuropathology, or maybe even as a cognitive enhancer, so I could learn French, for example, without an accent. Now, in trying to understand how this works, obviously, at the, at the level of molecules and cells, we really need to get into the brain. And uh, it's possible to do this um, in mice models. And, and in fact, uh, mice, as far as I know, have not um, been learning second or third languages. But mice, just like us, uh, have binocular vision. So here's the question. Have you ever thought about why it is you don't see double? I mean, what's happening, right, is you have two eyes, and each eye is sending a complete view of the visual world to your brain, and yet we only see one view of the world unless there's some pathology. And one of the reasons that we don't see double is because, in fact, the neural circuitry for vision brings the connections from the two eyes together in the central part of the visual pathways. And let me just show you a a very simplified diagram of that now. So the point is that the 
output neurons from the eyes, these RGCs, the ganglion cells, send their connections to central structures like the LGN, and then beyond that from the LGN to the primary visual cortex. So vision doesn't happen Visual perception doesn't happen in your eye, it happens in your brain. And so these first few steps, you can see already how the wiring is bringing the two eyes together. So for example, uh, one of these RGCs here is sending its connection across to this LGN. Another one from the other eye is sending its connection. And already you can see that the information from the two eyes is beginning to be combined. And then at the next stage in information processing, that information is again even more combined. In fact, there's a rather beautiful, um, in this case, um, uh, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, kind of intermixing of the inputs from the two eyes. And actually, those, those intermixed inputs uh, make connections finally with these little gray circles, and these connections are uh, the target neurons that, voila, become the basis for your binocular vision. In other words, they're getting input from both the right eye and the left eye. Now, before I go further, I want to define more what I mean about connections. I'm talking about connections, but what I really mean in neuroscience terms is synapses, the synapse. What is a synapse? So let me just define a synapse. A synapse is the junction or connection between one neuron and the next neuron along the line, passing information, and by the way, also doing some computations as the information is passed. And in fact, you are your synapses. What I mean by that is your synapses get tuned up during developmental critical periods, and even if you are genetically identical to your sister, your twin, or whatever, in fact, your brain's synapses are different because the pattern of tuning is slightly different in each case. So you are your synapses. Synapses change with learning. Memories are stored at synapses, and sadly, in Alzheimer's disease, synapses are lost. And so let's just remember that as I, as I talk further. Now, uh, what's amazing is that in animal models, it's possible to visualize synapses. So we can go down to the level of just a few microns and actually see and test synapses and understand how they work in the animal models, like in the mice or even in uh, higher, uh, higher mammals. And many years ago, this experiment was done, and it's actually possible to visualize this really beautiful left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye pattern of synapses in the visual cortex. And I just want to show you a very famous picture now from uh, David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel's lab. And at this scale, let me just point out that these, like, <laughs> these white blobs over here on the left are uh, they're supposed to be grains of rice. So this gives you some sense of scale. Those are grains of rice. And here you see one eye, let's say the right eye, was labeled with a white tracer substance that gets all the way to the visual cortex and labels all the synapses that are functionally connected to the white right eye. And so you can see what just what I told you, that there's this beautiful right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, striping pattern. And at this scale, what you're looking at really is hundreds of thousands of these synapses at this scale, where every little dot is about the size of a synapse. Now, when neuroscientists first discovered this beautiful striping pattern 
of synaptic connections, they thought it had to be hardwired. It's much too beautiful, much too reproducible to be left to chance. But in fact, it turns out that during a postnatal critical period of development, this pattern has to be tuned up. In other words, even using both eyes together for binocular vision requires an experience-dependent period. And in fact, one way that this was discovered is in trying to understand what's different between childhood cataract and cataract that you might get as an adult or your grandmother might get as an adult, where you know if you have normal vision your whole life, uh, and then you lose vision in one eye for some period of time, when the optics are corrected, then you can see again perfectly as an adult. And that's because these beautiful stripes are stable. However, during a developmental period, these stripes are not stable. They're getting tuned up. And if a child has a congenital cataract that's not corrected early on in development, then the eye that's good gets way more than its fair share of territory. So way more white synapses in the visual cortex than the bad eye gets. And the bad eye actually loses uh, synaptic connections. In fact, those connections are pruned. And uh, Jay re uh, referred to this. Um, I think several of our previous speakers talked about this idea of a period when there's a lot of synaptic remodeling and pruning going on. And that's what I want to really talk about now. So let me just summarize by saying what you see now before your eyes is a really beautiful example of synaptic plasticity. That is, the ability of a neural circuit to change its pattern of connections based on use. And this is an experience-dependent change. And in this case, it happens only during a developmental critical period in the sense that after the critical period is over, which in us is around at the age of six, these connections become stable and they can't change this dramatically uh, at later ages, which is why grandma can see even after having a cataract for a long period of time, whereas the child, if the cataract isn't fixed quite soon, uh, will be permanently blind in the eye that was not used. So this is a real use it or lose it kind of thing. So, you know, let me just summarize here again by saying then that the baby's brain uh, just like the adolescent's brain, is not a miniature version of the adult brain. It's a dynamically changing structure. And part of the change that's happening, and we can see it in the animal models, like mice, for example, is that there's this synaptic remodeling. So synaptic plasticity is the basis for these developmental critical periods. And during this time, many immature synapses, the ones that are used, get strengthened and stabilized, and the ones that are not are pruned away. So there's a kind of pruning versus a growth period. So now the question is, how in the world does this work? How is this happening? And if we could only understand it, we could restore plasticity maybe to the adult brain. But in order to do it, we really have to understand what are the underlying molecules and mechanisms that actually are responsible for this kind of pruning process. So for many, many years ago, we worked very hard to discover molecules that might be involved in pruning. And I want to tell you about one. So this molecule is a big mouthful. It's called PIR-B. It's called paired immunoglobulin-like receptor B. And it's very cool that it's a receptor. The reason I emphasize that is because if you have a receptor, it can be targeted for a drug or a pill. As I said, this is like my dream, but we're not there yet. But it's good that it's a receptor. 
And the question is, how can we show that this molecule is actually involved in plasticity? So one way that it's possible in a mouse, anyhow, is, uh, well, first of all, I should say that this molecule is present in the brain. It's in the neurons. Happily, it's in our favorite parts of the brain that we like to study all the time, the visual cortex in the mouse and the hippocampus in the mouse. So it's there. Now, how can we actually study its function? Well, in mice, it's possible to remove that particular molecule by taking away just that gene from the whole genome of the mouse. So there are 30,000 genes or so, and one can remove just that gene and uh, from the very beginning of development, for instance. Uh, so we can make what's known as a peer B gene knockout. And we can then uh, either remove the gene from the very beginning of development, or if we're really fancy, we can take it away at any time of life. And then we can test, is this gene needed for whatever, synaptic plasticity? And the bottom line is, what we discovered is that, in fact, in these gene knockouts, uh, in fact, there is not only is the gene needed, but there's actually more synaptic plasticity than, in, than normal. And I'm happy to talk about this later, but just take my word for it. Peer B is, is needed for synaptic plasticity. And so then we asked, how is this happening? What is actually going on? And you already know the answer because I told you. I told you that during the synaptic plasticity involves both pruning and strengthening of certain connections. So we thought, let's look at pruning in these peer B uh, knockout mice. And to make a long story short, what we discovered is that pruning is deficient. And the way we did this experiment was to label some of our favorite neurons in the brain, these little green dots, with a green tracer substance. And then we could actually uh, look at very high power over here. We could look at these little protuberances, which are the sites of the synaptic inputs to these particular neurons. And then we could count them all. And when we did that experiment in normal, wild type versus pure B knockout mice, what we discovered is that there were actually way more of these connections in the knockout mice than in the wild type mice. And that actually persisted all the way into adulthood. And what we'd actually discovered is that somehow peer B is required for synaptic pruning. And in the absence of peer B, so in this knockout mouse, what we discovered is that pruning was deficient. The seesaw went in favor of synapse formation, genesis and stabilization, and away from synaptic pruning. Okay, now there's a lot more one could say about this, but actually what I really want to talk about is, Boeing, a light bulb went off for us. Actually, a few light bulbs went off for us, but I want to tell you about one. Here's the light bulb. The light bulb is that in Alzheimer's disease, there's excessive synapse pruning. And this is thought to be caused, at least in part, by uh, these bad plaques and tangles that are formed by the accumulation of a substance called beta amyloid, which actually uh, conglomerates to make very large plaques and tangles. And it's thought that this beta amyloid is part of what's uh, responsible for loss of memory in, in uh, Alzheimer's disease. So question is, is peer B involved? Because remember, peer B is a pruning, is needed for pruning, and here we have too much pruning in Alzheimer's disease. So 
how would you study that? Well, we've studied it in a large variety of different ways, but the first way is peer B knockout mice, please meet Alzheimer's disease mice. So what do I mean by that? So neuroscientists can make mouse models of disease, and what they can do is they can actually put into the mouse the human disease gene, the mutated gene, and sadly for the mice, but thank you mice, the mice can then end up with a human disease. And in the case of Alzheimer's mice, there are a variety of models, but in, in this case, we, uh, there are two genes that are known to cause early-onset family Alzheimer's. Both of these are put into the mouse, and the mouse, uh, at about nine months of age, gets the plaques and tangles and, sadly, also s- uh, serious memory loss. So what we did is we, went, we, we decided, let's see what happens if we remove peer B. Remember, if we remove peer B, then there's no pruning that happens. So what happens in Alzheimer's mice that don't have peer B? And amazingly, when we studied their memory performance at nine months of age, they were protected by, uh, from memory loss in the absence of the peer B molecule. So that actually kind of makes sense. It's rather exciting, at least to me it is. Um, So how does this happen? So again, to make another really long story short, what we discovered is this peer B receptor is actually hijacked by the bad, this, this beta amyloid. And what do I mean by hijack? What I mean is that peer B, as I said, is a receptor, which always gets everybody excited in terms of making drugs. A receptor is a protein on a cell that does work for the cell. It takes information from outside of the cell, and it actually transfers that information to inside of the cell where, the, where it can do work. And in the case of peer B, that information is part of the pruning process. And there are normal ligands for peer B, including this thing called MHC class 1. So what we think is happening is that beta amyloid is also binding to this peer B molecule and driving pruning to excess. So the other point I want to make is that it turns out that there are actually uh, human um, uh, homologs of peer B. There are quite a number of them. And what we discovered is that one of them called another mouthful, I'm not even going to write it out for you, it's called LILRB2, so it's very similar to peer B, and this human homolog is also binds, it seems to be hijacked by the peer B, by beta amyloid, and it's also present in the human forebrain, and the s- signaling caused by uh, binding of, of beta amyloid seems to be also derailed in the same way in the human Alzheimer brain as it is in the mouse brain. Okay, so now I'm going to summarize. Okay, so what I've suggested is that Alzheimer's disease, um, which is thought to be a, uh, a problem of synapse pruning, may be driven by beta amyloid peer B interactions. Definitely worth following that up. So pruning, you know, is, there's, is accelerated in this case. And uh, What it also suggests to us is there might be a pill in there after all. Um, And what's great is that we could even maybe make a pill based on the fact that there's a receptor here. We know exactly what to do. And in fact, we have made a little pill and tried it out in in mice. And so the last point I want to make is stay tuned. So 
I think it's really interesting that Peer B or LILRB blockade might represent a, a slightly different therapeutic abro- approach for treating Alzheimer's, but maybe also other pruning disorders. Now, this might be good in the sense that, I don't know if you read recently, but there was another failure of another major Lilly uh, Alzheimer disease uh, drug trial. So it's, it's really, I mean, I, I'm getting older. I would l- really like something soon. I want these trials to succeed. But maybe there's a pill, but even more interesting, I think, is that, in fact, lessons from neural development may offer new treatment avenues for Alzheimer's disease and other pruning disorders. So with that, I just want to thank everyone. Thank you all. And also, I want to thank our organizers. And I have to remind everyone that this experiment was done, uh, these kinds of experiments, with many, many students and colleagues and someone. And I would also like to thank the mice. So thanks, everyone. What I'm going to try to do is to tell you what the challenge is and how far we've gotten. So first of all, this diagram, which Pat Churchland and I first uh, published in our book in 1992, with The Computational Brain, illustrates the, the real uh, difficulty here uh, because there's 11 orders of spatial magnitude between molecules down here uh, at, the, at the, the very bottom and the entire central nervous system that gives rise to behavior up at the very top at the meter scale. And we've heard talks today at every one of these levels. We've heard about uh, hormones, the important uh, impact that they have on on remodeling the brain, especially during adolescence. Uh, Synapses, we've heard that uh, pruning may be of critical importance, both in the development and the degeneration. So that's clearly uh, very important in understanding how the molecules at the synapses, in particular, are responsible for maturation is, is can be critical. Uh, we, we know that uh, there are changes occurring in networks. For example, uh, we heard about the impact of sound on the maturation of a baby's auditory system and how important that was for being able to later uh, you know, have uh, normal language and learning ability. If you can't hear properly, then it's very difficult to know what people are saying, and especially if you start going to school, uh, it puts you at a great disadvantage. We heard about the um, brain imaging, the important uh, technique that allows us to tap into large-scale patterns of brain activity. But how do you jump from these large-scale patterns way up here, global activity, down all the way, you know, through the, all the systems and the maps. We heard about uh, the visual system. It's, it's a sequence of maps from primary visual cortex to dozens up to the very uh, higher areas that are responsible for uh, being able to recognize objects. Uh, how, how are we going to connect the dots between all these areas? That's, that's really the challenge. And it's not going to be necessarily jumping from molecules to CNS, although we'd always like a magic pill, right, that is uh, targeting a specific molecule and then hoping that that will solve schizophrenia. I don't think that's a good model. And the fact that we've had how many clinical trials for Alzheimer's that have failed in the last two or three years is at least a dozen trials saying that amyloid plaque is by itself, is getting rid of it isn't necessarily the way, way to solve the problem. 
Now, there's something missing from this, and I have to say that um, there's a lot missing from it, but just from today's talks, I think you've heard that we have to add at least one more type of cell to this diagram. <laughs> that uh, half the cells in your brain are glial cells. And in particular, there's the astrocytes. We've heard a lot about the microglia. The oligodendrocytes are very important, too, because they're the ones that wrap around the axons and they speed the action potential down the axon. That has to do with timing. And so we really have to put them front and center if we're going to especially understand something about when things go wrong. Now, when I was young, I was told that space is the final frontier from watching Star Trek. <laughs> but I now come to believe that the final frontier is going to be time. Understanding how the temporal processing occurring in different circuits and delays that occur between communication between different parts of the brain may be critically important. We've neglected it. So I've worked on networks for my entire career. And I've always thought of networks as being you know, the tightly interconnected group of neurons, typically in the cortex, a single neuron connecting to 10,000 neighbors, and in a single column, 100,000 neurons, and that adds up to, uh, you know, at the end, billions of synapses in a single column. But uh, there's another kind of network, and that's a communication network. A communication network is the one that extends broadcast. Uh, the signals in your cell phones right, are being broadcast through a communication network. And the brain has one that is just as sophisticated as anything that we've ever come across. But I want to take you back to the early days when Carla was a young puppy, and, uh, or a young kitten, I guess. I'm not sure what... <laughs> would be the proper way of putting it, when she made a very important, very important, uh, sorry, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a very important observation about traveling ways in the retina. The reason why it's important is that these occur even before the eye opens. So there's dynamic patterns of activity that are already spreading through the retina. And here you can see uh, this is now from a more recent paper, but uh, this is from an array of electrodes that are put on the, uh, the retina that's slapped down, and, and these are the action potentials coming from the ganglion cells. And you can see over seconds, this wave of activity sweeps across the retina. Now, why is that interesting? Well, it turns out that this, these waves are giving a temporal structure to the action potentials going up to the next stage in the lateral geniculate, and it's essential for getting that pathway wired up properly being able to sort out the input from the two eyes, first of all, because the waves are independent, but secondly, is information about location, because the, as the wave spreads from one location to the next, it, the, the action potentials arrive one position to the next, and that helps sort out the map in LGN and ultimately into the cortex. Now, very recently, we discovered waves in the cerebral cortex. Global waves, unbelievably large-scale patterns of activity that we still don't understand the significance of, although I have a pretty good hypothesis. And they occur while you are sleeping. When you go to sleep, you go through several stages from awake down to deep, slow-wave sleep. But on the way, you go through stage two. It's called intermediate sleep. And it's characterized by these sleep spindles. These are bursting activity that originates in the thalamus, projects to the cortex. They are 10 to 14 hertz. 
They last one or two seconds. They recur every five seconds. And there are some people who spend up to half of the night in this slow-wave sleep, during which the spindles are occurring. Now, I've done some very detailed biophysical modeling, so I can tell you precise mechanisms that give rise to the spindles. It's a bursting. It has to do with new ion channels that are uncovered when the cells uh, hyperpolarize. It means the membrane potential goes down. But what I would have never guessed is how the uh, activity you know, between the thalamus and the cortex organizes itself. In the textbooks, what you hear is that it's synchronous. That is to say, it occurs the same place in the cortex at exactly the same time. And it is approximately synchronous. But I want to let you decide for yourself how synchronous it really is. So this is an array of electrodes, 8 by 8, 64 electrodes, that have been placed on the surface of the cortex in an epilepsy patient who has been gone, gone to the hospital with uh, a form of epilepsy that can't be treated with any drugs. And so what they have to do is isolate the focus so they can go in and take it out and hopefully keep that epilepsy, the person from having seizures again. So here's the uh, electrodes. And by the way, they have these electrodes in for about a week uh, waiting for a seizure to occur. So it's a fantastic opportunity for someone like me, a neuroscientist who wants to ask fundamental questions about a human brain about things like language, for which there is no other model system. Okay, so what we've done is uh, color each in gray, uh, from white to black, the, the, as you can see, the amplitude. And, and this is the one that you're going to see here in red, is, is this one, but all the other electrodes are going to be represented that way. And, uh, and I want you just to follow the, the white dots and tell me what pattern they form. This is going around 170 milliseconds, right? So this is going around at roughly uh, 14 hertz. And you can see as it goes up and down. So did everybody see what I saw? It's a rotating circular traveling wave. And it's global. It goes from... As you can see, it goes from the temporal cortex to the parietal cortex up to the prefrontal cortex. And if you look at the pattern on the side of my head, this should remind you of Princess Leia. <laughs> now, what are these? So this occurs thousands of times during the night. What is it doing? We think it has something to do with synaptic plasticity because the timing is just right for something called spike time-dependent plasticity. And so it may be that we know there's replay from the hippocampus during the night. It's called memory consolidation, and it occurs over many, many nights. And this might be the mechanism. So we have a really great opportunity here to actually explore it. Now, we, th we know that the, there are connections, long-range connections between different parts of the cortex. These are called association fibers, and also across between the hemispheres. <laughs> And it's really these that we think are carrying the time-delayed signals. And it may be that these time delays are really important, getting them right. We know that in, in for example, a traumatic brain injury, when soldiers come back from, uh, from the Middle East with uh, traumatic uh, problems with traumas, they often have problems with concentration and attention and uh, concussions on football players and so forth. And when you look in the brain with MR, the only thing you can find are little spots in the white matter. So it could well be that the white matter 
is really important for integrating globally all the information in different parts of the cortex. And it could be that by strengthening connections between these distant areas through uh, spindles or some other mechanism that we're able to connect up all the different uh, parts of the sensory cortices and the association and the prefrontal cortex. Now, the timing is also obviously very important in the auditory cortex and in the motor systems. So this is, I think, something that hasn't been explored. We focus so much on the gray matter and not so much on the white matter. There are some really intriguing observations that when learning takes place, it's not just the synapses that change their strength, the volume of the white matter changes. How could that be? Well, the oligodendrocytes that wrap around the axons change the speed. So maybe what's happening is you're adjusting the timing of the spike as it goes across these large-scale connections between different parts of the cortex. That's all speculative, but I I think it really means we have to start looking carefully at the axons as well as the dendrites. Now I'm going to play a science fiction movie for you. It's It's an animated, but it's based on the connections we see, and it's also, it gives you, uh, you'll see an impression of the activity that might be taking place within the cortex. So these little white uh, flashes are actually action potentials, spikes going down the axons that you just saw uh, between these different cortical areas. And this gives you an impression of what it might be if you could actually see into your brain, you know, the person sitting next to you, and, and, and actually see what they're thinking or, you know, what they're seeing or what it is that they're doing, uh, you know, in terms of their motor system. Their, uh, every, every single thought is going to be represented by some pattern of activity in some part of your brain and specifically in different parts of the cortex. Now, right now, this is science fiction for the human, but... On April 2nd, 2013, Obama announced this grand initiative. This only, these grand initiatives only occur once every decade or two. And when they do, it really has an impact. Uh, and it has had a huge impact in the neuroscience community over the last three years. Techno- uh, the, the key uh, letters, by the way, in the acronym IN is Innovative Neurotechnology. And, and I have to say that our sponsors, the Kavli Foundation, were critically important in bringing this uh, uh, opportunity to the notice of the White House. And, uh, and Myung Chun, in particular, was the spark plug who actually got the thing off the ground. So we really owe the Kavli Foundation a, a great debt of gratitude. But what's happened since to th- this announcement is really astonishing because new tools and techniques are coming online that are accelerating research by orders of magnitude. And let me give you one example. And this is not science fiction. This is real. This, you are seeing a zebrafish larval brain. You can see it's, not, it's only a millimeter or so across. It contains about 80,000 neurons. It has a genetic marker uh, that will light the neuron up when it's activated. See, here's a neuron, here's a neuron, here's a neuron. These are, these are the ones that are firing at this particular moment in time. And this is looking at it from below. From, uh, from above, from the, side, from the front, and from the side, we can record from all the neurons at the same time from this brain. Okay? And I'm going to play a movie just to prove that. 
Now, I have to tell you, this, this, this uh, zebrafish larva is just sitting there. It's immobilized. And there's no uh, sensory input. There's no light. So what you're seeing is called spontaneous activity. But every once in a while, the spontaneous activity, the pattern changes, like right there. What's happening? Something happened in the brain of the zebrafish that is unrelated to anything that the zebrafish is experiencing or is, 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 is actually moving. Uh, but it, it, it's really clear, to me at least, that we don't understand the first thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's a Chinese curse. May you get what you wish for. And, and this is something we've always wanted, to be able to have access to uh, all of the neurons and the activity occurring. I mean, for all we know, the zebrafish, is, this is what the zebrafish does when it thinks. I mean, what do you do when you go to bed at night and you're sitting there, right? Uh, and there's no sensory input coming. You're not moving. But thoughts go through your head, right? I mean, so that's got to be represented somewhere. So this is getting uh, tools and techniques that allow us to decode what those patterns are is really the challenge. And we're very fortunate that tools and techniques are coming online exactly when we needed them. Uh, It's called machine learning. And there's a meeting that's been held for the last 30 years called Neural Information Processing Systems, NIPS. And the next meeting will be held in Barcelona next week. 6,000 people will show up. The first, at the first meeting, there was 600, so it's a factor of 10 greater. And every single high-tech company is showing up for, to recruit. And why? It turns out that these tools and techniques that are, have been developed and have been inspired by the brain, the N is neural, uh, it turns out have fantastic applications in the real world. You've heard about deep learning. Well, deep learning came from this NIPS community. And those same tools and techniques can be used for understanding those patterns of activity that you just saw, for analyzing large-scale recordings, for working out the detailed wiring diagram called connectomics, and for quantifying behavior. It turns out that we can go way beyond the simple, you know, uh, having an animal press a button with having it move around freely. And, and this is, uh, can be done automatically and, and scored. And it's, uh, it's been done on flies. It's been done on uh, mice. They have a sequence of stereotype behavior. They, they groom themselves and so forth. And interestingly, on humans, we can now detect and automatically score your facial expressions. Like we saw some pictures of the fearful face. Well, we've worked with Paul Ekman, and we've developed these deep learning tools to actually be able to do that automatically and we can detect these fleeting moments of expression across your face. They're called micro-expressions. And they're very telling because they're brain leaks. They're feelings you're having inside that leak through. And you may not even be aware of them yourself, but they can be picked up now. And, and, and that can be a way that we can understand a little bit more about you know, the internal state of your brain. Okay, so uh, I just want to end by saying that Lyle Muller, who was responsible for doing that beautiful rotating uh, traveling wave is on the job market. So if you have a job <laughs> for a budding young experimentalist uh, and, and, and a theoretician and a data analyst, he's your man. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.